Isaiah chapter 65. We're going to begin reading at Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1. We're going to read the first 16 verses. So if you have your Bibles, Isaiah 65, verse 1 to 16. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that's not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth tainted of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their bosom both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and they insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their bosom payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord. As the new wine is found in the cluster and they say, do not destroy it for there's a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it and my servant shall dwell there. Sharon shall be a pasture for flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword and all you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you didn't answer. When I spoke, you didn't listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servant shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse. And the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we are not left to our own devices, that we are not left to our own ideas about you. We thank you that you have spoken clearly in your word. And Lord, we've, we, we rejoice that you've spoken clearly in and by your son. And we pray that you'd give us ears to hear. We pray that you would open our ears and our hearts, that we would hear your word and be shaped by it, that we would be shepherded by it the way that sheep are shepherded by their own Shepherd, we pray that you would do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we are about to get to some of the sweetest verses in all of Scripture. 
uh, the end of 65, Isaiah 65, and, and uh, some of, of 66 are some of the sweetest verses in Scripture. They're the, ones, they're the ones that talk about what heaven is going to be like, what eternal life is going to be like. What is it going to be like for those who know the Lord after they die? And then ultimately, when he returns to judge the living and the dead, what, if this is going, what is this going to look like? And because I am so kind, I left those passages for Jordan to preach because he's preaching the next couple of weeks. I was the one who, who preached Isaiah 53, so it was only fair that he would preach these verses. Now, the Lord knew that whoever would read these passages, primarily the people who would be reading these passages, these sweet passages about the new Garden of Eden that's going to spread it to the whole world. The whole world is going to be the Garden of Eden, the whole thing. Only delight, only joy, only comfort, only peace, only righteousness and love and every eye wiped of tears. He knows that primarily those people are going to be reading those passages. Most of those people are going to be in the church. These are going to be verses that are going to be read by people who are known as people who are the people of the Lord God of Israel. Whether that's the Old Testament church, Israel, or it's the the New Testament church, he knew that these words are going to be, be read and heard by these people. And there's a danger that there's going to be people who take comfort in those words who shouldn't take comfort in those words. Before he gives some of those sweetest words of comfort, he backs up and he says, I want you to know very clearly who these words I'm about to speak are for and who they are not for. Who, in fact, are the citizens of the new heaven and earth? Who, in fact, are the citizens of Zion, the new Jerusalem? Dear friends, it is so important for us to know these things. Because there is a danger that those who truly belong to the new heavens and earth, who really do belong to Christ, who do belong to the church, who do belong to Zion, who do belong to Israel, there is a danger that they might not take comfort in these words, and they might spend their days in fear and worry about what eternal life is going to be like. Will God really hold me? Will it really be better for me to belong to God? But there is an equal danger that there are people who will take comfort in these words when they should have no comfort in them at all. People who assume they are citizens of the new Jerusalem, who assume that they will be in heaven with the Lord when they die, but they are in fact strangers and aliens This shapes the purpose of these passages that the Lord speaks through Isaiah. The first point, the first section we're gonna we're gonna pay our attention, uh, draw our attention to, is just in verse one. And here's the point that we're gonna draw from here that we're gonna that we believe that Isaiah is actually intending, and that's this: God's plan to call enemies to Himself is eternal. God's plan to draw enemies to Himself is eternal. Let's read verse one. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. And so here the question is, who's going to be found? Well, obviously, it's the people who once were lost. I once was lost, and now I'm found. And it is those who didn't seek God. And it's, not because the, it's because the Lord is himself not lost. The Lord isn't the one who is lost. It's we who are lost. And that means if, if we're to be found, it's to be by God's initiative. 
And it would make sense to the people who are first hearing this. It would make sense. You'd be like, oh, the people of Israel, the people of the Old Testament church. Those are the people that God is saying are going to be found. They're the ones who are lost. They were straying like sheep. He's going to get those people. But in fact, what he says here is he's actually, I'm not talking about Israelites here. I'm not talking about lost Israelites. What is he talking about? He says to people of a nation who are not called by my name of lost people who were never called by his name, who never called themselves by God's name, who no one ever said, hey, those are the people of the Lord God of Israel. Now, what does it mean to be called by God's name? Does that mean that everybody who belongs to God gets the name Yahweh? No, that's not what it means. It's the benefits that come from God's status. Imagine there is a a very swanky dinner, this only for elites, people of incredible wealth and power are invited. And yet you somehow are invited, not because of anything you have done, but a friend invites you to come and join them at their table. Imagine you come up to the door and you, you ask to be let in, and they're like, well, under whose name should I let you in? Who are you with? And then you'd say the name of the person who you're with, party of so-and-so. This is the sense in which it means to be called by God's name. You are part of a household that has his benefits in it. And this is true, that the household of God, whether it was the Old Testament church, Israel, or the New Testament church, it is a household that has benefits that are attached to who God is. And this is true even for false converts. There are benefits to being among the household of God. Because the church, or in in the Old Testament, would have been the people of God, the, the nation of Israel. The church is marked and ruled by his character. If you grew up in the church or you live amongst the church, you're you're you part of the church in a sense, even if you're a false convert, there's incredible benefits to that. Because this is a people that's marked by God's character. You're marked by God's laws, and God's law are good. Because sin is no good holiday that God is keeping us from. It's not a gift that God just is not good enough to give to us. No, sin is terrible. And there are benefits to being part of a community, part of a household that loves God's rules. They love God's character. And they say, we will not dive into those sins. You're protected from some of those things. This is a community, a, a, a people that's disciplined by God. That God will not ultimately let them stray fully or finally. He in the Old Testament sent prophets and priests and kings and pain in order to bring them back. And there was such a great benefit to being among the people of God, even if you were a false convert, even if you didn't love God. There's benefits to be ruled by his laws because his laws are good, aren't they? And we look out into the world, the world rejecting God's laws, rejecting his character, his design for marriage and family, his design for life and all these things. It's not better. It's death and destruction and chaos. How sweet it is to be among the people of God. And now, of course, there is eternal benefits for people who are true members of God's household. And here he speaks, God speaks of people who were never, ever even called by the name of the Lord. They were not merely straying Israelites, but these are people who were raised 
with no knowledge of Israel's God. Never were they ever taught these things. They were not taught the, the, the commands of God and the promises of God. And here's the promise is that when the Messiah comes, when the Messiah comes, the members, the citizens of Zion, Jerusalem, Israel, they're going to include people who were once from a nation that was never, ever called by God's name. Dear church, I want us to remember the wonderful gift of God Saving only people who have no business being in his household. Reaching out and seeking and saving enemies. And now to be called by God's name. Could anything, could anything be greater than to reach the end of your life and enter eternity being called by God's name? For him to say, he's with me, she's with me. They're in on, based on what I have done. They're in because they belong to me. And then even before the end of your life, could there be anything to walk through this life, anything better than to walk through this life with its mixture of great joys and great sorrows, to do so being called by God's name, living as a true member of God's household. There is a beautiful gift of being called by God's name, being part of his family, his people. But then Isaiah turns and he says, uh, he, he talks to, he, 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 in verses two to seven, the point here is that many people who were known as the people of God will be condemned. Many people who were known as the people of God will be condemned. Let's see this is in verse two to seven. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me in the hills, and I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. That's far God's word. Now the question is, is he here talking about Israel or is he still talking about the Gentiles? Well, the point is it's kind of hard to tell. And which is actually the point, because he is talking about Israel, but it seems like, isn't it? Doesn't it sound like he's talking about people who never were among the people of God, who weren't part of the household of God? This is his point. He's talking about these people as if they're Gentiles, but really these are people who were part of the Old Testament church. They were part of the nation of Israel. They had been given the massive gift of being known as the people of God. All the nations knew Israel's part is, belongs to Yahweh. They had access to God's law, his good law. They were in a household that was protected and cared for by God himself. They had access to the gospel. They had access to the gospel. They knew how to have their sins forgiven, have eternal life. They knew that God was going to send to them a savior who would die instead of them. They had Genesis chapter three. 
They had the story of Isaac's ram who's being substituted for him and killed instead of him. They had the Passover lambs. Every year they celebrated Passover. They had access to the gospel. And yet, they preferred life outside of the household of God. They were looking outward and saying, man, life is much better to be people who are not called by God's name. So much greater to live by different laws. If we could just cut out some of God's laws and commands. And in fact, even God's promises of the gospel are kind of insulting. You know, they say we need a substitute to die instead of us. I don't like that. What about the the other nations say that we could earn our way and that God would be happy with our works? And so they're following their own devices. So we see that in verse 2. Where God has spoken, they say, well, that's not what I think. Well, it's interesting that God says that. I know what God says, but. It says here that they're sacrificing in gardens. What's wrong with sacrificing in gardens? Well, here's the thing. The sacrifices that God said, I, I want them to be offered in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the point of only sacrificing where God told you to sacrifice is actually a really lovely point. By giving Israel that rule, what he was saying is that, look, this is my idea. Reconciliation, payment for your sins, is not something you came up with. It's, it's mine. It's not something that you earn or you came up with. It's something that I, I give to you. And so sacrificing where God said, don't sacrifice, is them saying, no, 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 I will do this. This is my idea. It's something that is grabbed rather than something that is offered freely. Like a father saying to his children, come here, I'll feed you here. And they're like, no, we'll take whatever we want. And he is saying, no, these things are gifts that I give to you. They're sacrificing in gardens. The other thing is that those gardens were actually very sexual in nature. It had to do with fertility, fertility of, of fields and, and, and flocks and all those things. And then so they brought in sexual practices of the pagans as part of their worship. They're also worshiping in tombs. They're doing, these, they're doing pagan uh, worship services and saying, no, no, it's, it's, it's for the Lord God of Israel, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they're wanting what the nations had, that God said don't. They're wanting to have Christian, essentially Christian fortune tellers. They're wanting to have Christian ways to speak to the dead people. Christian ways of knowing exactly which job I can pick so that things will work out for me. They're finding extra commands. They're finding extra promises. They're seeking a spiritual connection because that's what their neighbors were doing outside the household of God. And boy, wouldn't it be better if God was just a little bit more like the gods of the nations? And yet, they were extremely proud of their holiness, extremely proud of their righteousness. They're very proud of these things. Verse 5, they say, Keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. And the thing is that the, the children of the church, you could say, they came up with new commands and rejected a lot of the commands of the Bible, and they came up with new ones, and they thought of themselves as more holy than the people who would just stick with Scripture. We are so much more righteous than you. We are holier than the people who don't keep these new rules. We are actually holier than God's commands. And so it becomes a sign of holiness 
to reject at least some of God's commands. And God says, they are provoking me to my face. To be called a Christian or to take the name of Christ, it doesn't make rejecting God's laws better. In fact, it makes it even worse. It is provoking God to his face. It is the difference between a child disobeying their parents in secret, which is bad, and a child doing it, looking their parents in the eye and breaking their laws. He said, you've insulted me on those mountains. And dear friends, this is happening, this happened in ancient Israel, and this happens regularly throughout the church's history. It's happening in our day within evangelicalism. If you've heard of the phrase deconstructing, this is something that started years ago and wasn't called that, but it is a major movement within evangelicalism right now. Where the children of the church, those who are raised in the, the benefits of being raised in the church, all the sweet ways that God protected them from terrible things that would have otherwise happened to them, then maybe there was, there was obviously sin in the church as well that's going to happen, right? But being raised in, in, in under the, the, the name of God was a great gift to them. And they want to hold on to that name and then condemn all the people who hold on to Scripture and say, we're actually the better Christians. We're the ones that are more holy, more moral. But they want to retain that name, Christian or evangelical. So they're rejecting teachings like hell or the fact that Jesus was punished for our sin. They're rejecting uh, the, the roles of gender in the church, rejecting the teaching that only, that, that only qualified men can be pastors or elders, that men are supposed to lead in the homes. They're rejecting even the, the idea of gender and sexuality and marriage, even embracing different new charismatic mystical practices, the ones that are borrowed from pagan tribal religions introducing them and then getting upset and saying, no, no, we're obviously more spiritual than you because we're doing these things. And thinking they're fine because they are called by the name of Christian or evangelical. And God says, this is not, doesn't make you more safe. This is provoking to God. This is being near the most wonderful gift that could be imagined. Being even somebody who benefited from it, being raised under the shade of this beautiful tree of the kingdom of God, and yet you've treated it with contempt. He says it's like smoke in God's nostrils. Whenever we go camping or whenever we have a campfire or a bonfire, every single place that I sit, the smoke goes directly to me. It doesn't matter which way the wind is going. And that, There's nothing worse than to have smoke from a campfire in your face. And God is saying, this is how I view this. And he, said, he says here, don't make, make no mistake here, God will repay. He says he will give an exact measure and he will measure it into your lap. He says your father's iniquity, the people you inherited these ways from, and your own, I will measure into your lap. Now here he's not saying that you're punished for sins that your father did but you did not do. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that you will both, you will both pay for the sins that you have done, even if... You can blame your father because you got those ideas from him. 
Even if you inherited some particular sin from your father. You know, I, I beat my children because my father did. No, no, you, you can't say, well, that's not my sin because my father did it before me. No, no, no. You and your fathers, this is what he's saying. You'd be punished by God for your sins. And being amongst the people of God, being part of the nation of Israel, the Old Testament church, that, that doesn't mean that this is not going to happen to you. And it also translates here in the New Testament to the church, being raised in the church, being baptized in the church, being part, being a member of a church. Those things is not what it will spare you if you're not actually part of the family of God. So I want to say a word to the children of the church. I want to say a word to the children of the church. And by this, I don't merely mean young people. You can be a child of the church and 80 years old. The gift of being raised among the household of God is tremendous. Think of what you were spared. Yes, suffered as well. There's sin there. But life where God's laws and promises are present is so much sweeter. You've heard of God's good law. And you've heard of even, the even better gospel. That Christ died for your sins so you can be reconciled to God to become a child of God. However, being here in the visible church is not a place that can be trusted to save you. If you think that you can belong to the church and now reject God's commands or pick and choose a particular command or promise to reject and think that you will be spared from God's wrath. You're foolish. And God loves you enough to warn you right now so that rather than just being among the family of God, you would join it by repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ. Now, people who are Christians, this is a word for you as well, for us. Because very often we find ourselves thinking that life outside of the commands of God's, God is better. That it would, be much more, it would be much more pleasurable, more satisfying, if we could simply just ignore one or two of God's commands. And so we've just made peace with maybe one sin or two sins and say, no, no, I'm still a Christian, but this is me. If you understood how my parents were, if you understood how hard my life is, you understand that I can hold on to this and still be a Christian and God wouldn't, it wouldn't bother God. This could be something like divisiveness, that you're known as divisive, and you know you're divisive, and you kind of own it, but it's okay, I'm a Christian. God will just have to accept it. You've just made peace with that. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's lying. Maybe it's unforgiveness, where you just refuse to forgive people the way God has forgiven you, and you say, well, it's hard for me. Dear friends, life is not better outside of the kingdom. It's not better. You do not really want to live in a world where forgiveness is not treasured. Where humility is not treasured. Where unity is not treasured. Where faithfulness in marriage is not treasured. This is God's loving warning to you. Our third point is this. The promises of Eden belong to those who are reborn. Let's read this in 8 to 12. Thus says the Lord, 
as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains, and my chosen shall possess it, and my servant shall dwell there. Sharon shall be a pasture for flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, I will fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Thus far, God's word. The Lord will not condemn everyone. If you look at the household of God, right? The Old Testament church, Israel, and the New Testament church. When he, when he looks at this place, you will see, and exclusively what you will see, you will only see, you will only see sinners. This room exclusively includes sinners. That was true of the Old Testament church. It's true of the New Testament church, exclusively sinners. And so then, how can we say, that, so, so then we say, well, is God going to destroy all the sinners within his household? Who Are they all just false converts? Is being somebody who has sin, does that make you actually just a false convert? He's saying, no, no. I will not spare all, I will not, I will not destroy all of you. I will save some of you. In verse 8, it seems like he's referring to a song that they would sing during grape harvest. Or maybe if, if, if uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a vineyard, if they're looking at it and there's a whole bunch of grapes that have gone rotten, or maybe there's a disease, and they're saying, we just got to clear the whole thing. We got to destroy it. It's good for nothing. And so they come into this, and the idea is just total destruction. But there was this, this song or this, this proverb that they would quote, that says, do not destroy it, for there's a blessing in it. If you found, even if the whole vineyard would be destroyed, if you found a cluster of good grapes, you wouldn't destroy that. And this is his point. I will not destroy everyone. Now, who is it that will not be destroyed? Who is it that will not be destroyed? Verse 9, look at this. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob, and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. If you're not paying attention, you might think, well, well, obviously, why would he say I'm bringing offspring from Jacob? People who are from Jacob or Israel are offspring. And he's saying, no, no, no. I will bring forth offspring from them, meaning they're not yet my offspring. They're not actually children of God. Just simply being born doesn't make you a child of God. doesn't matter where you're born. You're born into a pagan family or an Israelite family or a Christian family. You are not born a child of God. But he says, I will take some of them and I will make them born again. I will make them my children. This is what Jesus is saying in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. doesn't matter which part of the world he was born into. It doesn't matter what his family, what his parents believed. He's not God's child unless he is born again. He says, I will bring forth offspring, born again, born by the Holy Spirit. And who is it? How does one become a child of God? 
It is by hearing the gospel, hearing of what Christ has done, hearing that you are guilty and you deserve to go to hell, that your heart itself is sinful, not just your actions, but your heart itself is wicked and it hates God and loves to disobey him, to hear that you are guilty, but God so loved guilty people, enemies, that he took on flesh and took their sin and their damnation and their death, was crucified, he died, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. It means you hear that and you believe. You entrust yourself to that gospel. You believe it. You want what that gospel gets. Not just part of it. Because Satan wants part of what that gospel gets him. Satan does not want to go to hell. So if that's all that the gospel was is you can be forgiven, Satan would be sign me up. But faith in the gospel means faith in what the gospel gives, the whole package. I want to be reconciled to God. Kevin read that, read that for us. I want to be reconciled to God. So I want to say a word to the children of the church. Whether you're 80 or whether you're three, I want to say a word to the children of God, or the children of the church. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, and that he did that to make you God's child, so that you wouldn't just be forgiven, but you'd actually be God's child, where he's your father and you're his son or daughter, and that means that you love him, he loves you, If that's what you believe, then you are not just a child of the church. You are a child of God. That means he's your dad, and he always will be. He will treat you like his child, and he always will treat you like his child. He will love you, not as long as you deserve it. He will love you as long as Jesus deserves it. And I think we know that that's forever. He said it's for those who seek him. And he calls those people his chosen. Which essentially means the people that he chose and he sought them. We sang this morning, from heaven he came and sought her. The people who God sent Jesus to die for and then sends his Holy Spirit to grab you. To grab a hold of your head. To grab a hold of your heart. To give you faith. And if you do believe in the gospel, what happened first was that he sent his Holy Spirit to you to get you. See, Jesus does not attempt to save people. We know that there's attempted murder, there's attempted theft, but did you know there's no such thing as attempted salvation? Every single person that Jesus seeks, he saves. You've heard of the parable of the lost sheep, where the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes to get the one. Is there a chance that parable ends with his shoulders empty? Not a chance. Every single time that parable plays out in life, the shepherd comes back with a sheep on his back. If he died for you, he will find you. You will hear the gospel, and you will believe it, and you will be saved. Brings us to our next point, our last point. Either you will be called cursed 
or you will be called by God's name. Either you will be cursed, or you will be called cursed, or you'll be called by God's name. Let's read this in 13 to 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. My servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for the pain for pain of heart, and you shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants, he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Thus far God's word. Do you notice that he, he splits this up and he goes back and forth, and the first category is the you, or use, it's, it's uh, plural, use, use guys, you, and the next one is my servants. Who are the yous? The yous are the people who hear the word, who are used to it, who hear the word of God. They hear the commands of God and they hear the gospel and yet do not hear it. They ignore it. They don't care. They don't want to be shepherded by it. They reject it, but they hear it. That's the you. And the others are the people who hear the word of God and are shaped by it. They're captured by it. They're grabbed by it. That the word of God can actually turn them. That when they hear the gospel, they believe it. And then after they're saved, they hear God's commands and they follow them. Not in order to be saved. They already were saved when they believed. But now they hear the commands of God and they follow them because God has given them a new heart. A heart of a child of God who wants to obey him. Not in order to get saved, (laughs) but because he already has saved them. Not in order to get adopted, but because God has already adopted them by Christ's death and resurrection. Jesus tells the parable of the two sons in Matthew 21, verse 28. And I want to read it for us. Matthew 21, 28. This is Jesus speaking. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first son and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son, and he said the same. And he said, I go, sir, but didn't go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe in him. Let's put these two passages together. That second son would have at first been known as the servant of the father. If you would have just seen the interaction, the father's interaction with those two sons, and you had to label each son. The second son, you'd be like, I'm going to put the word servant on that guy. Blessed child. Wonderful. You would have a good name. That guy starts with a good name. And the first son, you would have known as the cursed son. You're going to call them each. If you had to pick, you'd be like, that's the cursed son. That's the servant. But by the end of the parable, they exchange names, don't they? 
When Christ came, many, not all, in the visible church rejected him. And they forfeited their right to be called children of God. They rejected him. They they forfeited their right to be called children of Abraham. They even, Paul will say, rejected their right to be called children of Israel. Showing that they never really were. They were just in a privileged position of being among God's people, of being near the commands and being near the promises of God. Enjoying many of the benefits of sonship while never actually being sons of God. And then, as the gospel, as the good news of Jesus spread, many, but not all, many who had no relationship to Israel, they would have been labeled cursed. Rightly so. They heard the gospel. And they believed in Christ and were granted the gift of being called by God's name. And that's why later in the, in the Gospels and even in the letters of Scripture, you'll see that now they get to be called the Israel of God. They get to be called sons of Abraham. They get to be called the Messiah's children. And even more than that, they're, beca- they're called part of Christ's body, formerly known as God's enemies, as thieves, liars, pagans, cheaters, homosexuals, gossips, bitter, unforgiving, slothful, cowardly, addict, formerly called by those names, but now, but now they're called by God's name. They belong to his servant Jesus, and they will inherit all that he inherits because he has made them his And then I want you to see that reasons to run from Christ, reasons to sin, become reasons to run to him. Hunger, thirst, shame, and pain. Aren't those all reasons that we would give as an excuse to sin? I really feel this need. I feel this, I gotta do this. And he's saying, no, don't do that. That will not end in your, that will not, in your satisfaction. And so the reward for those who trust in Christ is that they will not be hungry, they will not be thirsty, they will not be put to shame, and there will be no pain for them. They will eat, they will be satisfied, they will rejoice, and they will have gladness. And this is, this is compared and contrasted to those who assume that that would be true for them. They assume that because they were among the people of God, maybe born into a Christian family or born into an Israelite family in the Old Testament church, they assume that that all these wonderful gifts of heaven would be theirs. And they will find out that they're not. Not until and unless they repent of sin and trust in the Lord Jesus. And those whom everybody would have assumed that these blessings are not for, will be found in heaven, in the new heavens and earth, rejoicing, eating and drinking and feasting with God with their tears wiped away because Christ came to seek and save the lost, enjoying not what they deserve, but because Christ already suffered for what they deserve, enjoying what he deserves forever. And so, dear friends, dear church, 
I want to urge you not to assume that because you are called a Christian by others, or even that you call yourself a Christian, do not assume that you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. That is only for those who are born again. Only for those who repent of their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus. And I want to say a word to those who are Christians and who are worried, who do trust in Christ, who have repented of their sin, and who are worried about the future, who are worried when they think about death, it makes them worried. You don't have to. You're called by a new name. You will not face the gates of glory. You will not face judgment based on your own record, your own merit, your ability to face death. You're not strong enough to face death. You're pretty weak. But he's not. And so all the blessings that Christ has earned are yours. So rest in them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice that you have come to save enemies because that's who we all are no matter who we were born to. Our hearts are sinful. As David said that we are, we are conceived and born in sin. David being from the tribe of Judah. We were conceived and born in sin and Lord, I pray. I pray that we would all, everyone here, would truly be your children not just enjoying the benefits of belonging to your people, but to actually be one of your children. We pray that you'd give us ears to hear. Lord, I pray that we would not just be hearers of your word, but that we would be believers of it and doers. We pray that you would save the children of this church and of every church. And that for all the ways that we have been jealous of the world and all the other religions and tried to like jump, bring in those things in, Lord. I pray we repent of those things. And we'd just be restored back to loving what you have commanded and trusting what you have promised. I pray that you would do that in Jesus' name.